0: Hello everyone, this is Nina Sunday. Thank you for all the love. The response to our publishing Charles Handy's conversation with Ada McCullen, host of the Innovation Show podcast, has been astounding. The most listens in the first week than any other Manage Self Lead Others episode to date. I love it and I'm thrilled you do too. This episode is part two, the second half of the conversation with Charles Handy who is one of the most widely known and influential thinkers on management. In this episode, you'll hear Charles Handy share his model of the shamrock organisation, the citizen organisation concept, the donut principle, the white stone story, and Aristotle's theory of eudaimonia or active happiness. A former professor at the London Business School, Charles Handy authored many books with his most recent book titled the Second curve. A big shout out to Aidan McCullen, who kindly gave us permission to publish his interview from last year. Now it's over to Aidan McCullen, speaking with Charles Handy. Enjoy.
1: It's what they wanted to do to me in the hospital. They would find it much easier if I was a robot curled up in bed in a cylinder and programmed To get up at 6 in the morning, but not later and not before, and to go to the loo at certain hours of the day. And uh, they found it very annoying when I was a human being with a will of my own, that they had to give me an explanation as to why I had to not not wake up too early and so on. And they should try and persuade me and excite me and get me to agree with them, which is what leaders have to do, because we have the choice to follow them or not. And uh, I remember once uh, celebrating the 50th birthday of a friend of mine, and he'd ask all his friends to go with them, meet at the place, and then go on a walk, and we'd end up at a pub by a river, which would be very nice.
2: Not Davies Bar, of course. (laughs) Not
1: Davies Bar, another (laughs) park. So we set off, and of course none of us really knew where to go, but eventually one chap who just retired as governor of Hong Kong and therefore, you know, was used to sort of commanding things. And he said, I know the way, follow me. So he trudged off, you know, in a brisk face being a sort of military man. <laughs> and, uh, and when he'd gone for about 10 minutes, he looked around and none of us had moved. <laughs> he hadn't persuaded us that we should follow him. He thought he was a manager and that we would automatically follow him, otherwise we would be disobedient. So please, if you're a leader, you are not a manager. You've got to persuade people, you've got to excite them. You've got to understand that they don't really understand why why they should follow you. Whereas if you're a manager, well, you know, if it's a lot of lorries you're managing, you can actually program them, or if they're computers, you can put programs into them so that they will do exactly what you want. But if you try to treat humans beings like that, you may be disappointed. They may not be following you. So there is a difference. So please Be a leader, not a manager.
2: But management is important. And you do emphasize this in your beautiful concept, your analogy of the Shamrock Organization, where the stock itself is management and it's ultra important.
1: Well, the Shamrock Organization is one of my little verbal inventions. I like having visual symbols because people remember visual things. And you should remember that the only slides I ever show in my talks are visual slides not PowerPoints, no words, only images on the shamrock has, as you well know, three leaves. And I say the modern organization has three leaves. The first leaf is uh, the core group who are absolutely vital to the organization. They hold all the core skills that the organization needs and the leaders there and some of the managers. The second leaf is the contractors. Every organization has a group of people who are outside the organization but provide vital services for it, usually cheaper than the organization can provide itself. But they have to be part of the organization. They must be not regarded as totally separate. And then they're all held together by the stalk, which is the sort of communication system but also the management system which knows what each path is doing, so that they are linked by an information system, which in turn is managed. But of course, it has to be led. You have to persuade people that they are all part of one whole, because if they don't all belong to that stem, then they're not a shamrock, they're just a bunch of leaves, which is not much use. And so the great trick, if you're a leader, is to, is to help decide who goes into what leaf and how big the core should be and to find a way of linking the people who are outside the organization with the people who are inside it so they all belong to the same shamrock and so one of the things the leader has to do is to design the shamrock perfectly made up of lots of little shamrocks
2: yeah i love that idea of of a team of teams in a way and one of the things you talk about is a shift from headcount, like you said, which means people are things, and you talk about this idea of the citizen organization
1: Yes, I mean, it's very funny, I think that uh, we pray to pride ourselves on being great democracies in Ireland and Britain and everywhere, really. but it's very funny that the the organizations provide the means for our living, we earn the money that we pay. We pay them in taxes, that fund our public services. Our organizations are undemocratic. They're really they're like monarchies or tyrannies with a boss card who tells everybody what to do. They're not democratic at all. So I say, supposing we regarded them as citizen organizations and we aren't employees, we're citizens. Now, the point about being a citizen is that you are ultimately the people who own the organization. Only, I say, the point about ownership, we're using the wrong word. Citizenship doesn't mean you own Ireland or you own Britain. It means that you have certain rights because you belong to this community. And I want to talk about the language not of ownership but of rights. And I'm saying that if you are a... A shareholder, if you've bought shares in the organization, then you have certain rights as a shareholder. You have the right to elect the, the leaders of the organization. You have the right to earn a dividend from the profits of the organization. But I'm saying that if you are a citizen, an employee, uh, you also have some rights. And one of those rights, I think, is to have a vote just like the shareholders of a road. You should have the right to vote for the uh, directors of the company. You should have a right to a share of the dividends, not because you are a part owner of the organization, but because you are a citizen. And people get confused. They talk about cooperatives in which people are co-owners. But I think that's a mistake. They're not their citizens. And as a citizen, you have a vote, for certain purposes, and you have a right to earn a dividend. But so do the financiers of the organization. And to call them owners is wrong. They don't own the organization, they only own shares. But as shareholders, they have certain rights. So I want to change the language from language of shareholders and owners and employees to the language of citizens and financiers, who each have different rights. And in my organization, the employees are citizens and as citizens, they have a right to a dividend, which is a form of profit sharing. And they have a right to vote for the directors of the company. And they have a right. If the company wants to sell itself, they have a right to vote for that, as citizens, not as employees. By using different terminology and different metaphors, I try to change the focus away from money to actually rights and To me, a company is a group of companions who have a common purpose and they all have different rights according to their contracts. And an employee is a contractor as a citizen and a financier is a contractor as a shareholder. But they're not the same. And trying to send citizens into shareholders doesn't work because they start thinking only in terms of money. And it's not about that. It's also about the conditions of work and so on.
2: I love that concept Charles and you mentioned earlier on about the hospital and their drive for efficiency and you talk about this there's a big difference between efficiency and effectiveness and I love how you put this efficiency starts from the input while effectiveness works back from the end result which also highlights how leaders need to sell that vision and be great storytellers within the organization in order to sell the end result but efficiency is often the scourge of the second curve.
1: It's so easy to improve efficiency you know Get rid of 100 people, tighten up the target, reorganize. It's very easy to do. But actually, it makes no difference to the end product, really. it's As I said before, it is the necessary condition to be efficient. But what really you need to do is look at the end product, which is called effectiveness. No good being efficient if you're not effective. It's the two different concepts. Efficiency is about how The resources you put into them and how how you manage those things. And effectiveness is about the outcome. And you work backwards to make things more effective. And efficiency is part of that, of course. But it's not all of it. A lot of it is knowing what it is you're trying to achieve. So I kept saying in the hospital, what you're trying to achieve is to make me more independent so I can manage my own life. And they said, no, 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 we're not interested in that. We're trying to keep the cost down. I said, well, it's still good keeping the cost down if you don't cure me, don't help me to get better. And they said, oh, well, I don't know. That's how we're judged. And I said, well, that's terrible. You shouldn't be judged on keeping the cost down. You should be judged on how many people you send out able to walk from the stroke. And I'd be delighted to help you with that. But they didn't like that very much. And because their bosses were judging them on how they kept the costs down. Yeah. And I said quite often, in order to make your boss work more effective, you have to increase the costs. A little investment here maybe will make it much better results. And uh, that's the right thing to do, even if it pushes up the costs. So please, start with what you're trying to achieve and work backwards to what resources you need to do that. And cutting those resources may often mean you don't achieve the results you want. Efficiency can be the curse of effectiveness. So bear that in mind. Start with what you're trying to achieve and never forget it. And find a way of measuring that, or at least observing it.
2: And, Charles, here you introduce another beautiful image, which is the idea of the donut shaped projects.
1: One of my favorite images is the donut. I say, I believe in the donut theory of organizations and management or leadership. And people look at me in amazement. And I say, Well, don't worry, it's an English donut, it's the jam in the middle. So if it's an American donut, it's got a hole in the middle, and that's no good at all. But I said, Every job that you think of has two overlapping circles. There's a core, the jam. And that's what you have to do or you have failed. You know perfectly well it. what the core covers. is probably written down for you in the job description, but that's not the whole of your job. You think it isn't, but no, that's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you've failed and you get sacked. But the job is bigger than that. There's a dough, there's a ring around the doughnut, <laughs> a space. And that space is there to be filled. And actually... Because you're actually doing the job, you're the best person to fill it, to use your imagination and your curiosity to fill the donut, and improve on the bit in the middle, the jam in the middle, so that you fill the whole donut. If you try to do it as the boss then you're what effectively, you're making the whole donut, be all jam, and then as you can imagine that doesn't work very well. For instance, um if you're a train driver, you've got an instruction. You've got to drive it at a certain speed so that you arrive at different stations at the scheduled time. And please make sure that you are on time because otherwise you will disappoint people. And it's no good arriving early, so don't use your initiative to arrive early. That doesn't work. You've got to approve it in the right way. But actually... In the end, if you just confine yourself to doing the jam bit, the core bit, it gets very boring. You want to use your imagination. And if you don't leave space for that in the job donut, people will get very easily bored. I remember when I came back from Shell to head office, I had a very big-sounding job. I was coordinator, regional marketing, Mediterranean region, excluding France which is always a bit difficult. (laughs) And um, I had a long job description of all the things I had to do. And at the bottom it said, authorities, authority to initiate expenditure on your own account up to a maximum of 10 pounds. So that was my, my discretion. That was my space of the donut. Well, that wasn't enough to keep me happy, I have to tell you. So I discovered that they'd forgotten that I had actually something called negative power. I could stop things even though I couldn't start things. So one day, my job was basically to take requests from the operating companies around the companies in Shell around the Mediterranean and forward them to the right department and head office to implement them. And one day, I got a, a message from the Italian company to build a refinery in the Bay of Naples. Well, I've been to the Bay of Naples. It's one of the most beautiful places in Europe. And I tell you, honestly, the thought is it was one of my sticking points. You don't ruin the environment. And to the thought of building a refinery in the Bay of Naples, I thought was really against all my principles, which I believed in. So thinking of my message from Sophocles and then Antigone, I was being asked to do something that I thought was fundamentally immoral and wrong. Well, I wasn't in an authority, so I couldn't tell them no. But what I could do was tear it up, which I did, and I threw it in the wastebasket. Of course, it didn't stop it, because they assumed there was something wrong with the Italian postal system, and they sent more copies, and they copied <laughs> to lots of other people. So in the end, I'm afraid to say, it got built much to my annoyance. But I stopped it for about three weeks, so I was upholding my principles with my negative power. And the interesting thing about organizations is that no matter how lowly you are, you have negative power even if you don't have positive power. So if you're the bus conductor and it's a wet day, you can stop people getting on. And uh, there's nothing they can do about it. And anybody who's low down in an organization can lock the door and stop you getting in. That's why you must make sure that even the lowest people in the organisation believe in what the organisation is doing because they have this negative power. I mean, the most important person in many ways is the receptionist in the outer office. They are the first people that the visitor sees when they come in and they represent, they are an ambassador for the organisation. And if they're rude or standoffish or unhelpful, then that's the opinion that people will immediately form of that organization. So you better make sure that your receptionist believes in what the organization does and is charming and courteous and polite and um, leaves a good impression because if they turn people away, you won't even get to see them and they leave with a very bad impression of your organization because they have negative power. So please, please even if they have no positive power or authority in their donut, make sure they're happy with what they're doing and believe in the organization. It's very, very important. And all that I learned, actually, from tearing up a proposal to build an oil refinery in the Bay of Naples. So you never know what you learn if you have curiosity. And it's always useful if you work out why. And please don't use your negative power, because you'll have quite a lot of that.
2: Charles, one last story I thought to share is you talk about self empowerment and self responsibility being so important in this world where it's more and more a DIY society. But one of the things you do to remind yourself of your values is you keep a white stone on the desk in your study. And I think it's a lovely lesson. And I think it's something that we can all learn from.
1: Well, yes. Um, you just reminded me that on front of my desk, I have a white stone. And why? Well, because one day I was reading the Bible, which I don't do as often as I should, I'm sure. But the book I like most is the book of Revelations, which is very peculiar. It's a sort of magical book. And you can lose yourself into the images that comes up. And one verse says, to one who, to the one who prevails or, say, succeeds, the angel said, I will give a white stone on uh, which shall be written a name, a name that'll be known only to the one who receives it. Now that's a lovely image, and I don't know what was intended by St. John who wrote the the book Revelation, but I interpret it in my own way, that there is a there is a sort of ideal Charles Handy, that's me inside me, who. Um, embodies all my values and my beliefs and my purposes in life and so has my name written on it, nobody else's name, just me, and I keep it on my desk just to remind me that I must be true to myself and hopefully that's uh, my better self, not my worst self. And so I sit there and look at it and I think, uh, well, what do I really believe in and what do I really want to achieve? And how am I going to, in some way, make the world just a little bit better? Not hugely better. I mean, I can't run the country. But I would want to make sure that at least uh, what I do should contribute in some way to making somebody happier, somebody better, even if it's only my wife or my children, or just myself, actually. Uh, Let me, for goodness sake, But i I feel that i haven't wasted all the time i've had on this earth that we live up to my white zone and what is the best image of me
2: well you've certainly made me a lot happier and there's a line i pulled as a kind of a closing comment from me and perhaps it'll tee you up for your closing message for our audience today the line i pulled that i absolutely love from the second curve is we need to challenge orthodoxy dream a little think unreasonably And they're the impossible if we are going to have any chance of making the future work for us all, not just the favoured few. I love that line, Charles. What about you? What about your closing line and your closing message to our audience in this world of rapid change?
1: Always be hungry. Never leave the table satiated. In other words, have unachieved ambitions, dream a bit. Don't take yourself too seriously. I'm very lucky at the moment. Part of the stroke results in my my right side of my brain, which is the creative bit, has been given free rein. I think. <laughs> um, the The boring bit of my brain, which makes my body work, is sort of tamed down. But my imagination is leaping away, and I have amazing dreams about five o'clock in the morning, which transports me all over the world giving talks to strange people and doing strange things. I find that very exciting because it stimulates my imagination um, and makes me really think. I come up with new ideas and new theories just because I start off with a dream. I mean, there's an organization in China called HIA, which makes kitchen, white goods for kitchens, you know, refrigerators and cookers and so on, dishwashers. It's run by a bit of a tyrant, really, but he's got this idea. It employed 80,000 people in China and some more in America. Divides them all into little groups, self-managed groups. And he says, if you can some way find a new customer or improve the product, I'll give you a share of the extra profits or the savings that you make. And I had a dream. That uh, I was transported there in this stream to give a talk to them, and after the talk, which they applauded very nicely in English, as all these Chinese speak perfect English, of course, a lesson for us, somebody said, "How big should these groups be?" And I said, "Well, I tell you what these groups are really f- little families, and families are very special things because." They know each other very well. They may not always like each other very well. They may not even approve of them each. But they know each other very well. And as a result, they trust each other a lot because they know each other's failings, And they know what they can rely on you for. And I say, but I'm talking, of course, about the core family, the core piece of the shamrock, if you like. So, I mean, your parents and your brothers and your sisters. So, let me ask you, Write down, think of your own family, think of the families of your friends. How many people in that core, counting the parents and your brothers and your sisters, but not your cousins, because you don't know them well enough to trust them. I'm talking about the people that you are close enough to be able to smell them, so you know them very well. How many are in the core of your family? And let me know what the sum is. And they wrote it down, and they thought for a bit, and they entered them up, and I said, well, what are the numbers? And they said, and it came out at between eight and, 8 and and 12. And I said, there you are. That's the size of the groups you need to have. So in a funny, strange way, I invented a new new kind of theory. Family groups is a great organization, not more than 12 people. and uh, And I think it's quite a good rule of thumb. You must only trust people that you can be close enough to smell them. Is the other rule of thumb, and uh, you can you know how to you know what your family smell like, whether you like them or not. You know where you can trust them and where you can't. And uh, so, curiosity, imagination, and boredom, um, itchiness, itchy. Believe that you can be better. Believe that you can dream, and uh, let yourself imagine what it could be like if you had total freedom to do something. I mean, your life your life is a very precious thing. It's only going to happen once, unless you believe in reincarnation, but then you might be reincarnated as a frog, so that's not quite <laughs> much fun. So this is your own, probably own your life as a decent human being. Uh, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to leave behind? What's your legacy? Some of my Jewish friends tell me that Jews... Have two wills, one is their financial will, and the other is their value will. what they want people to remember about them when you die what What were the key values that your children will remember? the fact that you were very jovial, fat, full of dirty jokes, or will they remember that you were a brilliant rugby player, or will they remember that you were really excellent company, or they where were they what will they remember? And think if they if you're a really good father, what will your children remember about you? I have to leave you with Aristotle though. Aristotle was asked what the point of life was. And he said, Eudaimonia, E U D A I M O N I A. Looks like read Eudaimonia, but it's Eudaimonia. And when asked what it was, most people translated even then as happiness. But Aristotle was an activist. There he was a philosopher like me you know, and loved asking difficult questions. He was a, he believed happiness was active happiness, what he called self-fulfillment. I translate that as saying, doing your best at what you're best at for the good of others. Doing your best at what you're best at for the good of others. Now philosophers like me are very irritating people. When they give you an answer, it turns out to be another question. So Aristotle's answer, as I translated, is a question because only you know what you're best at. And only you know how to do your best at what you're best at. And only you know how that can help others in some way. But that is what your life is about. Happiness of an active sort. So I like to think that what I'm best at is writing books and giving Borgo talks in a concert hall. But if I do it well, I hope it gives people some idea of how to make the most of their lives, which will make them happy um, and fulfilled, and in a funny way, so in a funny way, you get happiness by making other people happy. And so that becomes a sort of chain reaction to society. If everybody wants to be happy, it goes around making other people happy or doing what they believe to be their best people, then suddenly you have a wonderful society which sort of glows in the dark with everybody helping everybody else to make the most of themselves with their white stones. And uh, it's very interesting, uh, the American um, code, you know, as a preface to the Constitution, that the aim of the American state, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it was written by Thomas Jefferson, who was a follower of Aristotle, and in the Library of Congress, his copy of Aristotle in ancient Greek is covered with his notes, and he underlines this passage life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, he didn't guarantee them happiness. He guaranteed the pursuit of happiness. By that he meant the chance to fulfill the best of themselves. In other words, proper education, the chance to be what they are best of themselves. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not happiness. That's what he wants the American Constitution to deliver. And that's what I think every organization should aim at. Every organization, in its own purposes, should try to to try to full to make the most of its assets to make other people benefit. If it's only the customers, that's fine. Perhaps it should be the employees as well, the citizens. I mean, I think the ideal organization's makes allows its organization's life, liberty, and citizenship, and The ability, the pursuit of happiness, the ability to find the best of themselves and pass it on to others. So that's Aristotle. And he walks beside me in my head. Do your best at what you're best at for the good of others in some way. And the world makes them happy. And then they'll make other people happy. And the whole world will grow. So good luck. And thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Charles. Charles Handy, author of The Second Curve, Thoughts on Reinventing Society. It's been an absolute pleasure joining you here in your house in London. And I look forward to talking about your next book, and many more dreams that will be written in that book, I'm sure to come. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much. I loved your questions. I surprised myself with some of my answers. But that's very good. That's very good. Surprise yourself. I'm sure you will. And uh, have a great life.
0: Thank you, Charles Handy, author of The Second Curve. And thank you, too, to Ada McCullen for sharing this conversation with my listeners from his podcast, The Innovation Show. I feel confident you'll agree with me that we all should still pay attention to Charles Handy's quiet wisdom. Until next time...